todo el mundo. This is Stacy Lane Wilson, author and editor of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the films The Ventures, Stars on Guitars, and The Second Age of Aquarius. Rock and Roll Nightmares, the podcast, explores the dark and mysterious and sometimes funny side of music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. But that's just a jumping off point. Think of it as a 45 record you bought for the hit you know and then going to the B-side and discovering something really cool and unexpected. On this lo-fi podcast for hi-fi people, I will be interviewing, sometimes by myself, sometimes with a co-host, musicians, authors, artists, and filmmakers. Enjoy! Today I have a co-host, Leanne Rowe, who not only co-narrates one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books, it's the 1970s edition audio book. Um, she is an author as well with her zombie story, kind of a zombie story, comfortably dumb. Hello, Leanne, and welcome to the show. Oh, hi, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited that you're here um, to talk to our special guest today. But I kind of want to get into um, us first. We connected about a year ago um, when you and your narration partner, Vincent Lee Grayson, read my vampire novel, Dark Duet. Um, and it's kind of a rock and roll nightmare because one of the characters is a rock star. But in the case of the actual rock and roll nightmares anthology, um, you're acting out stories from a multitude of authors and inhabiting dozens of different characters. So. Um, what are some of the challenges and rewards to doing short stories as opposed to a novel? Ooh, um, I would say uh, actually too, because they are horror short stories in this anthology, uh, I found the characters much more uh, like bigger, uh, more challenging because they're a little bit crazy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you do have to do <laughs> broad strokes in a short story. <laughs> yeah, and so it's you kind of come in very uh, right in the story, and you just got to be right on it uh, to go through it. Um, but it's been uh, uh, absolutely uh, challenging and rewarding at the same time because you can really dive into these stories and be part of it. That you're kind of sad when it's over because they're, they're so quick. You know, you can't linger like you do in a novel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, you can't really build a character um, for 
Ashara, the vampire character in Immortal Confessions. I mean, you get mm-hmm. to stay with that character throughout several decades. <laughs> so it's a little different. I oh, know. and and she's so much fun and has like such deep, rich qualities about her that like I can step in and out of her. Uh, and I feel like I, you know, like she's a sister of mine now. She's part of me. <laughs> she is. Uh, yeah. Um, well, as I mentioned, you did uh, author one of the short stories. Um, and I love how you brought your own background um, in the music world to it. So kind of tell everyone more about your story and how you came up with the premise for Comfortably Dumb. <laughs> sure. Um, in in another life, uh, about a decade ago, I was a logistics supervisor for a whole bunch of bands. Uh, we specialized in their merchandise. And so when they would go on tour, we also had the, the semi-trucks that would follow them and the roadies that would come in. Uh, so it was a lot of, you know, Christmas time is crazy because everybody had to order uh, merch for Christmas. Uh, but there were times the bands would come to L.A. and they didn't have somebody to run the merch for, like booth. Um, and so I would occasionally rise to the challenge when I had the chance because I adored it. Um, I was merching the Scorpions and one of the band members had come up with a brand of coffee and he had handed me postcards to hand out while I was running the booth. And everybody just went nuts over these free postcards advertising coffee, um, <laughs> grabbing handfuls, like they're trying to get it. Wow. And I, I was just really surprised by that. I just remember being like, okay, so it's really great. We have these postcards for coffee. Uh, but you know, people who didn't buy stuff, they would take the free postcards. So I kind of thought, wouldn't it be funny to tell some of the stories of me running uh, a merch booth or being a merch girl and incorporate a freebie that's being handed out, but like the freebie has a dark side. Uh, so that's kind of where the premise came from. And it gave me the opportunity to pull from other fans that I'd come across at different concerts that were just crazy stories and kind of mesh them all into this one setting. Uh, I didn't know what the, the, cause it's a scratch and sniff sticker in my story. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was going to do when I started. I just kind of trusted that it was going to be pretty rad when I figured it out. So. I love how it all came together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really necessarily think of coffee when I think of the scorpions. That's kind of a weird time. Isn't it? Just <laughs> yeah. kind of, I, I had been, it was at the house of blues and I'd been there a week before I think doing Volbeat. And they were giving out uh, free guitar picks. Uh-huh. And so I just kind of thought, All right, is this this new thing? We're going to hand out free swag. And then in came the, the coffee. And I, I don't know if it actually boosted sales or anything, but, you know, they kind of had this, this keepsake from that. Uh, so did but you save the, one? Uh, I believe I have one in my closet. Uh, so it kind of worked then if it had an evil side I haven't figured that out yet but I'm sure it's coming yeah Uh, killer caffeine well and and also when you're with uh more heavy metal bands uh they're so fantastic they're probably the best uh bands that I've gone to to merch because they buy you drinks they they flirt with you they tip you they want to carry your merchandise to your car like it's just a really good uh a setting in that regard so I guess they were just more excited that there was more things to promote. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, Rock and Roll Nightmares covers um, a lot of the 70s cliches and the edition that you're in and that you read as your alter ego. 
Um, now it's, you know, I mean, there's rock star excess car crashes, uh, groupies plus ghosts that haunt vinyl records. We've got a possessed mm. guitar in the story. There's the death of disco, literally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what were a couple of the stories that you particularly enjoyed bringing to life as the narrator, the co-narrator? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Uh, all of them is the first answer. <laughs> well, of course, that's the diplomatic answer. But... Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the first story, Saturday Fright Fever, uh, because the characters were such uh, cliches of <laughs> disco and they were so over the top. And I think it's one of the few characters in the book that I had an accent for that you had suggested. And it was just uh, watching it. You kind of felt like you're going through the horrors that they are going through uh, while you're reading it. It's a very weird uh, atmosphere when you're in the booth. Um, so that one I definitely loved. Uh, also, a uh, long ghoul woman in a black dress. Uh, I got to see um, Vincent or Grayton's side where he had been a DJ. So I got to kind of watch him uh, do that kind of DJ voice, which was really great. And then I got to voice a demon uh, and she, she laughs evilly down the hallways. And I'll tell you a secret. Hmm. Um, I have the worst time laughing on camera. I feel like it sounds fake or like forced. And so anytime that you actually hear that demon laughing, uh, Graydon had tickled me. Oh, <laughs> so we okay. just used it later. Cause I, <laughs> I, anytime I do it before, I don't know what it is with me. It's just so hard for me to laugh. It's the same thing with theater or on film laughing. It's just one of the things it's my uh, Achilles tendon, I guess. Um, oh, wow. So that, that one was more challenging on that. Um, Hotel Kilimphoria was just uh, a gas. It was so much fun. Uh, and there was a little bit of stress for me to read my own story because then I felt like I, I thought it'd be easy, but I put so much more pressure on myself because now it's like you're reading your stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they, they're all really great uh, stories. And I also think uh, Love Dies Bleedingly by Dr. Oolong Seemingly um, was... Uh, it was a trip and it, because there's two characters at one point who are very close in age uh i actually got to challenge myself and try and have two different voices very similar and not change or do accents to differentiate them and I, they just came out really well um and you know there's there's some other wicked things that happen with the ouija board but it was just uh the whole book is just fantastic it's just, a, it's the riot. I listen to it a lot when I'm traveling around LA because it's just fun. Uh, thanks for um, helping me bring it to life uh, and the afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, where can uh, you be found online and where can authors who may be interested in having their own audiobook done hire you? Ooh, you could go to my website, which is uh, lillianeves.com. It's L-I-L-L-I-A-N-Y-B-E-S.com. Uh, it has my contact, uh, any way to email me at my, our list of uh, work that we have done. Uh, or we're also on Facebook as Lillian Eves and Vincent Lee Grayson. Uh, and what are some of the other um, projects that you've worked on that fans of horror or the supernatural can listen to? Ooh, um, I have, a, or we have a box set out of the Victorian Gothic series. It's a, 
a very creepy kind of ghost story. It's by Chastity Boland. She was actually uh, inspired by The Haunting of Hill House. To, to write this this three book series and it gets good and creepy and, and not like uh so much horror but it's very spooky like gothic um, kind of creepy yeah books. yeah she also has a series called the dark regency series that she does as well and that'll do ghosts and witchcrafts and, and witchcraft and like curses and psychics uh but i also have uh, a series coming out uh called the trial series mm -hmm. which uh follows a bunch of different paranormal uh, characters. It's it's a reverse harem series, but it's super fun. Uh, it's by Lizzie Ford. Uh, I'm kind of the, the base character and you get to watch uh, Vincent be a werewolf, uh, a fae, a vampire, who was my favorite in this series. Um, and it just kind of goes off the rails. Like it's a very fearless, uh, fun uh, time. And then, uh, I, I do a lot of work with visually impaired or blind authors. So we have some books that come out from them. That's a lot of poetry or anthology. Um, and these are all on audible.com? Yeah, they're all on audible.com. Or if you go to the website, you can see the, the link to them as well. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, sharing a little bit of yourself with us. And now we oh. need to get to today's guest. Oh, great. Let's go. In 1997, the world was shaken by the news of the horrific car crash in which Princess Diana died. And several years prior to that, Hollywood went into mourning when blonde bombshell Jane Mansfield was killed in a car crash and seared off the top half of her car, instantly killing the three adults in the front seat. While the rock and roll world is more notorious for its fatal plane crashes, the earthbound highway to hell is also paved with the souls of many great musicians. Perhaps the most tragic loss is that of Mark Bolin of T-Rex, the handsome glam rocker who was killed just shy of his 30th birthday in 1977. When the mini sports car his girlfriend, pop singer Gloria Jones, was driving, slammed into a tree. That's just one of the accounts covered in Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories. And which brings us to our guest on today's podcast, Spider One, Spider's band, Power Man 5000, has a killer song called car crash, which of course is the tie-in here, but we have a lot more to discuss with him. Welcome, Spider. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi. Hello, Spider. I always like to be associated with nightmares. <laughs> of course, <laughs> it's on brand for you. Yes, so. Um, well, I know that we're digging way, way back here into the archives with car crash, but what was the inspiration behind the writing of that song? Yeah, you're right. That is a, re that I was, when I was preparing to do this interview, I was trying to remember when we actually wrote that song. And I want to say it was probably 1994 or five. It's one of the, mm. one of the first songs we wrote. So yeah, it's, it's trying to remember the inspiration um, is, is difficult, but I know that um, I really think it's a sort of a combination of things. I mean, at the time when we were first starting the band, we were trying to figure out who we were and where we stood and we couldn't figure out a, a genre that made sense for us because we were notorious for blending, you know, rap and metal and punk and all this stuff before all those bands you've heard of that did that, you know, not to say that we mm -hmm. were, we created it, but we were really early on that sort of mishmash of eclectic blending. And so we used to call ourselves action rock, oddly enough. And so car crashes and superheroes and 
great white shark attack seem to be in our wheelhouse. Um, but that but that song in particular, I know thinking back on some of the lyrics, there were some references to uh, Mad Max, uh, the toe cutter and uh, some Cape Fear references. And so it was very much a, you know, a love letter to Hollywood destruction, I think is really what it boiled down to. But then also there was an element of that romanticism of, I think the car crash, the thing that you can't look away from and the thing, you know, and all those people you just mentioned as well as, you know, so many others, James Dean, right? I think died in a yeah. car crash. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, you know, it's sort of like what a way to go in your most prized possession, you know, that you would be showing off to the neighbors and that's how you meet your, your destruction, you know? So I think all those things sort of went into the concept behind the song. Yeah, I mean, uh, James Dean, there's kind of an eerie story that he had, I think just a day or two before he died in that car crash in his, uh, his sports car, race car, he had done a PSA, a commercial warning people not to drive too fast. Oh, so, wow. Very creepy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, and of course, you know, if you if you live in Los Angeles, this, you know, it is such a car culture that um, I think the uh, significance becomes even greater. Absolutely. Um, Paul Walker is a more recent one from the Fast and Furious movies. So it's definitely something that's in the zeitgeist um, and does touch rock and roll quite a bit. Um, but I want to bring it up a little more current from the 90s. <laughs> now, you recently covered the Go-Go's We Got the Beat, which really pleasantly surprised me. Um, you know, I mean, a great song is a great song, but you made a lot of changes to it, um, sort of making it more in line with your own industrial and gritty sound. Why that particular song, though? Um, I mean, it's sort of hard to believe, but the Go-Go's were the reason I started a band, which is kind wow. of strange. Like, you don't really see... I mean, I, and I was into a lot of uh, like I, I was always, I've always been a big fan of music growing up. Um, but the stuff I liked, it always seemed um, just out of reach. Like when I was a kid and I, you know, whatever was on the radio, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old. So like I remember, you know, you were listening to the radio in the 70s and you're hearing Elton John and Genesis and you're like, that's just magical. Like I could never do that. And then as I grew up, I you know, I discovered punk rock and stuff, but even those bands to me, it seemed like just out of reach for a kid who, you know, from Haverhill, Massachusetts, who never, who still really knows nothing technically about music, even all these years later. But <laughs> I remember, it's very strange because I remember specifically buying We Got the Beat, the, um, I mean, I mean, Beauty and the Beat, the album, and going to my buddy Joel Murphy's house and going to his basement and listening to it. And I could just, for whatever reason on that record, I could just hear the simplicity of the playing. And I turned to my friend and I was like, we should start a band. <laughs> <It's> like, so, <laughs> so all these years later to cover a Go-Go song just seemed like a fitting tribute, you know, to, um, even though you could never draw the, like practically draw the line between Power Man 5000 and the Go-Go's in any way, um, it just was one of those bands that um, meant a lot to me growing up. Well, I love it. And, and uh, you know, when you really listen to the lyrics, you break off, you know, sort of the poppy, upbeat sound of the Go-Go's version. The lyrics are pretty dark. 
Yeah, I love that about a lot of songs that people don't like. They they sort of are perceived as these really happy, um, carefree songs, and that's one of them that I always found to be, you know, it's very much about like to me anyway. When I hear read those lyrics, it's very much about like desperately falling in line and conforming and sort of being um, directionless in life and just sort of like well you know, see the people walking down the street, fall in line, you know, it just seems like, but yet it's their version sounds like such a party, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of songs like that. Like I, 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 I feel that way up. There's like, um, girls just want to have fun. I feel like it's like a tragically sad song underneath the surface of this fun dance song. Um, Jump by Van Halen for some reason seems very dark and desperate to me. And so I, I thought with We Got the Beat, it would be sort of fun to take the way that I perceive the lyrics and sonically make it feel a bit darker and o- ominous. Um, well, you know, when I chose Leanne to be my co-host for this episode, she was super excited about it. And you and I, you know, we used to know each other in another life and I haven't <laughs> talked to you in a while. But I mean, until she reminded me, I literally forgot that you're Rob Zombie's brother. <laughs> I just, you know, remember you from your own band and doing press events with you years ago. And, um, you know, while I would say that you and your brother's musical styles do intersect and complement one another. Um, you've always been one to experiment with different genres from rap to punk and, um, you know, the rock and this Go-Go's cover. Um, while so many bands only last a few years, yours keeps going. Um, so to what do you attribute your longevity? Honestly, it's sort of like people say, what's the secret to a long marriage? Mm-hmm. And it simply is not getting divorced, you know? <laughs> it's a similar thing with a with a band. I mean, I think it's really just not stopping, you know? Um, because unless you're one of the handful of artists that are fortunate enough to have reached the peak, you know, the biz- biggest levels of success and just stay there forever, whether it's U2 or Metallica or, the, you know, these bands that sort of rise to the top and just kind of, stay there for for most of us it's a it's just it's a roller coaster ride it's big success no success struggling then like oh wow things are turning back around and then oh they're not and so it becomes this uh marathon to just stay in the game and also to Mm -hmm. to be able to check your ego at the door and realize that that is what art does to you it it's not a guarantee you know, success all the time. And you have to be able to deal with that and realize, mm-hmm. hey, it's not 1999 anymore. And yeah. MTV isn't playing videos and we're not on K-Rock, but that's okay <laughs> because you still love what you do and you, you know, and you get something personally out of it. So for me, it's never really been about keep, you know, keep going because of the level of success. It's just keep going as long as you still feel like you have something cool to contribute to whoever wants to pay attention, you know? I actually I have a question outside of uh, music for a second, because when I was Googling you, um, you have this short film called This Is Not Acting, This Is Hell, um, which you wrote, directed, and produced. But as an actor and a theater teacher, I was immediately drawn to this, especially with the title. Um, <laughs> can you tell me about this short and what inspired it? Because I am super curious. Yeah, well, it's it, yeah, I'll definitely tell you about the short. But the, the more exciting thing about that short is it actually mm-hmm. 
turned into a feature. So oh, wow. uh, I'll get to that. So, so yeah, so I, I did this short film because I was getting stir crazy, you know, like there's a lot of downtime between, you know, making records and touring and stuff. So, and, I, and I've always been interested in TV and film and I've had some success and, you know, I, I created a show called Death Valley that was a horror comedy. It was on MTV for a season. And, you know, I've always directed music videos, but I never really sort of plunged into making my own films because it, I don't know, for some reason, it just seemed like something that you needed a lot of money to do and a lot of help. And until one day I was just like, you know what, I, I can do this. So, so yeah, this is not acting. This is hell is, was just a, a weird horror short about this incredibly arrogant, uh, aggressive uh, acting coach named Robert <laughs> Anderson Wright, who is teaching his class how to manifest the monster within um, and to just, you know, not give away too much. One of the students takes it a little too far and <laughs> to heart. So um, some terrifying things happened to him. Um, so we made this short and uh, it, it did, you know, I sort of did the festival route and it, it won a few awards and did quite well in the festivals. And, and I just felt like it was unfinished business. And so I got this idea to expand it to a feature where I was made this, uh, and it's done. And uh, I wrote, directed this feature, which which basically takes five different art forms, um, acting, music, sculpture, um, uh, screenwriter, you know, like in, in so in each in a painter in each segment, it's not really an anthology because when you watch the whole thing, they all the, the characters intersect and connect in some way and their lives cross in weird ways. But basically, it's this idea that you know the this this how art can torture you and your your ego and your insecurities can manifest very horrible uh results um and so each artist is sort of like uh, haunted by his own his or her own demons and terrible things happen okay did you actually have an uh maybe an acting teacher that inspired that character um, no i mean I, i'm not an actor i i i have fantasies about being an actor because i have mm -hmm. such like enormous respect for them and it's for me um i think it's like when people you know when you you write a song and it and they think like wow like how could you ever do that and for me great actors are kind of like that like i just watch them and i'm just like how do you sit there and have a normal conversation that's that I wrote down and make it feel so natural and effortless and I just am yeah so I'm I'm terrified to try it even though I have this sort of like underlying desire to try and be an actor one day <laughs> uh-huh well it's never too late yeah I feel yeah. like I'd be good in a like a you know like planet of the apes mask or something something ridiculous <laughs> like where I can just be kind of like what it is to be a performing musician it's just sort of like over the top and ridiculous and i feel like that i could do but if you said hey here's a scene where you and your buddy have coffee i'd be like I, this is going to be a disaster because i cannot relax enough to be natural well you have a, a credit where you play yourself on a, a tv show that i saw um do you felt like that was more stressful because you were playing yourself are you talking what, uh, 90210 yeah yeah i didn't know <laughs> if i was allowed to say the name but... I, I <laughs> Well, no, I mean, that was just, uh, yeah, that was, God, that was a hilarious story. Uh, we got asked to be on 902 and oh, the original um, by, um, by uh, Jason Priestley, because he was sort of like oddly a 
fan of the band. Um, and so we got to be ourselves. And the idea we were just performing, uh, which is fine, like because we do that all the time. But then when we showed up in LA um, from Boston, they handed us a script and we had all kinds of lines. And I, and I immediately went to him and I'm like, you, we are going to just ruin this show. Do not do this. Like, so they ended up scrapping and giving us all one line each. And it was still just terrible, <laughs> terrible. <acting. laughs> oh man, I'll have to check that out. Oh, please don't. <laughs> Uh, well, I want to get back to music just a bit here. Um, you know, you alluded to listening to KLOS and probably KMET like I did, you know, in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Um, and with Power Man 5000, you know, as I said, you guys really tackle a lot of different genres and, and go with whatever you're feeling at the time. But um, who were some of your musical influences aside from the Go-Go's when you were growing up? And to kind of dovetail off of that, have you gotten to meet any of those uh, music heroes of yours? Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I was, I mean, like I said, when I was a younger kid, it was, it was kind of like whatever was there was, you know, it was the Beatles and Elton John and stuff. And I, and I love all that stuff, but it wasn't until um, I stumbled onto like punk rock that I that was sort of like the light bulb going off and um me just going holy shit there is this whole other thing out there that speaks to me mm -hmm. so those were the bands that really um you know starting with this sort of like the punk rock 101 you know the clash the Ramones the Sex Pistols and then that led me to discover you know more hardcore bands like Black Flag and the misfits and you know minor threat and then i started to go to see a lot of those bands perform live um and it was unlike anything i'd ever witnessed you know it was just these insane club you know mosh pits with skinheads and dreadlocks and mohawks and it was just so exciting to me and so you know those were the things that really those, those bands were the, the bands that inspired me to to play music. Um, and then, you know, then that in a similar fashion, I got really into like a rap in the nineties, whether it's public enemy and NWA, because those, uh, that seemed very punk rock to me as well. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think the one thing that about all that, that music was that it wasn't very musical in a sense, you know, which I think also ex excited me because I never had the patience to sit down and become like a guitar virtuoso or learn to sing properly or so so I love the fact that it was all this exciting music that wasn't about proficiency it was just about passion and so that those are the things that spoke to me and have you uh met any of your uh heroes I'm sure you've met quite a few of them but maybe you could single out a couple of uh ones that you met I've toured with so many bands that weren't yes. necessarily my heroes but but crazy because because one of my early jobs was working at Tower Records and I used to you know stock the shelves and uh, you know with in it and it's crazy that x amount of years later I'm sharing the stage with these bands that I'm you know was putting a price tag on their cd you know whether yeah, it was that's wild. metallica ozzy pantera yeah. you know marilyn manson uh corn all these guys you know um but i did get to meet um well johnny ramon was a really good friend of my brother's and i was he would always be around at parties and stuff and i was 
I've met him, but I was always terrified to talk to him because, you know, I grew up such a huge Ramones fan. I would just see him and I would just kind of like slink into the shadows, afraid <laughs> to talk to him. <laughs> and so, so I kind of regret not being a little more aggressive in my, you know, in, in talking to the guy, but I was just terrified, honestly. And I met uh, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, which was pretty exciting, you know, because those, those are the bands that really just turned my life around, you know? Yeah. Or better or worse. Going off of Stacey's question, um, what other, what films do you think have influenced you as well? Oh, well, because, I mean, I was, I was watching movies that I shouldn't have been watching at a very young age. So, you know, um, I just remember being like 10 years old and loving Clockwork Orange, Taxi Driver, you know, like all these, <laughs> that really was shaped by the seventies. Um, even though I'm really a child of the eighties, I think, um, you know, that, that, that uh, stretch of the seventies where movies were just so gritty and real you know, like I said, whether it's Taxi Driver or Clockwork Orange or, or uh, uh, you know, The Exorcist, Jaws. Um, th these are all movies that I just dove into and loved. It's still, I mean, they're still my, you know, my top five movies are probably all, you know, if maybe there's one that pokes up in the 80s, but, you know. So those are the movies that really um, impressed me and I think still have the most influence on me you know, with my film, which by the way, is the feature is called Allegoria. It's not called, this is not acting, but, oh. um, you know, really was, um, for me, a lot of the inspiration was sort of a, uh, like almost like a Rod Serling uh, night gallery uh, mm. vibe, you know, very, very heady and, and adult feeling. Cause I always thought when I was a kid, when bad things happened to adults, it was way more terrifying because they seemed like the people that should be able to handle the situation, but can't. You know, I think that's what made The Exorcist so scary. Um, obviously, it was a young kid that was possessed, but the, the helpless adults around her, I think, were the more, more scary part. Um, so I loved all that stuff. But of course, I was, I mean, I've always been a big fan of science fiction and horror. So, you know, Star Wars, like everybody else, probably including you guys, changed mm -hmm. my yeah. life, you know, uh, Alien, um, you know, um, all that stuff, you know, um, The Shining. I mean, I'm a, just a big Kubrick fan, so I love all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean that, you know, nothing like too, uh, you know, nothing that everyone's gonna go like, oh, I've never heard of that. But you know, just those things really, um, but it's it's funny because it really does line up with what affected me musically. You know, it's really like a pattern of, re of reality and aggressiveness that I think always just spoke to me. This is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. So, of course, before we let you go, I have to ask, what is your rock and roll nightmare? Uh, well, I i mean, there's so many. But <laughs> so I feel like just being in a band is a nightmare. But, um, I mean, I literally have rock and roll nightmares, meaning, and, and I, I guarantee you, anyone that you talk to that's in a band and tours wakes up in a cold sweat with the same dream, which is it's time to play the show you you're disoriented you have nowhere to go you don't know how to get on stage you finally get on stage no one knows how to play the song you're looking at your bandmates they're looking at you like everyone's playing the, the song wrong it's time for you to sing you can't remember the lyrics i mean this is literally like a a, a, a common nightmare that i have all, all the time oh wow it's that kind of like the nightmare people the have in the uh, 80s 
What's that? I said it sounds like half the bands in the 80s that were all drugged out and would stumble on the stage. <laughs> yeah, I think for them, it, yeah, like, where are we? It was a reality, you know. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's just because I think in you know, and I always had what. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's funny. It's like uh, when you have those dreams about going back to high school and you can't find your locker or you can't like remember the combination of your locker. It's like a similar thing. Just this idea that it's just all going to uh, fall apart on stage in front of a bunch of people. And sometimes it does and becomes a, a real nightmare, which has definitely happened before as well. So uh, where can people find, find you online, find your movie? Uh, what can we look forward to next from you? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, we're everywhere, of course. Um, I'm, I'm working on a new Power Man record right now. So I don't mm -hmm. know when it will be out, but we just started writing some new songs. So that's exciting. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Spider One uh, and Power Man 5000. Um, and uh, the movie, um, Allegoria, been a labor of love. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, this film was... Um, you know, I self-funded the entire film, wrote, directed it. We I produced it along with, with, with Chrissy Fox, who's my producing partner. And we basically, it's, it, it, it's we, we almost have a joke, like when we roll the credits, it's like, we can't even include certain things because it will just be our two names going like the entire, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, so, so we make these, we, you know, and we made these, these we, we made this movie over COVID and, and we had to be like really, uh, aggressively careful and and have as few people on set as possible. So it was a real challenge, but um, really exciting that it it happened and that it's actually finding a home. And I'm excited for people to to tell me it's garbage. No, I'm just <laughs> you know how everybody is. But well, I'm that excited, is yeah. Excited yeah. for people to see it. I think I think um, I think people are going to be pleasantly. Well, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I don't know what people are going to think, but I'm I'm very happy with it. So that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, I know that you have excellent taste in not only music but film. You know, from when when we used to hang out and do uh, you know different things with film. So I, I'm very excited for you and super happy. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited about your film. Congratulations. Cool. Be sure and catch Power Man 5000 when they're on tour this summer with Rob Zombie, Mudvayne, and Static X. Tickets are on sale now. As always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from Gory Days, the 1980s fiction edition. The story is, Should I Slay or Should I Go? And it is by yours truly. Casey's gaze wandered around the room that had been his prison for several days now, or was it weeks? The femdroids had turned his lab into an operating suite. He took in the metal gurneys and tables, beakers filled with bubbling green liquid atop Bunsen burners and jars with various human body parts in them. He thought he recognized his own hand in one of them, but he couldn't be quite sure since his vision was so, so blurry. There were also surgical instruments on display, including several scalpels, old-fashioned hypodermic needles, two bone saws, and forceps. Mixed in were computer repair kits with ratchet drivers, hex keys, and a soldering iron. On yet another metal gurney lay flaps of silicone skin, bits of long blonde hair, motherboards, and SIM cards. His beloved creations were there. 
Some of them were lying on the cement floor, inanimate. Others were lined up against the wall, waiting to be powered up. And then there were the ones who'd become aware. Flynn hoisted Mueller up onto the gurney next to Casey. Mueller's head lolled to the side, and then his eyes widened ever so slightly. I must be quite the sight, Casey thought. His desecrated half-human, half-robot body was nothing but a mix of blood, sinew, bone, skin-like silicone, titanium metal, and zapping circuitry. He wondered if he still had his face. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film, Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time. <laughs>